I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. There are people who show up early and stay late to ensure that the work of the day gets done. There are mentors and teachers, motivators and sounding boards. They are the lifeblood of the community, a walking support system for anyone in need. These people are driven by purpose and a deep love for the community. Ms. Rosetta Miller-Perry is one Nashvillian who embodies all of the above. Later this hour, we'll meet the woman behind the city's longest-running black paper, the Tennessee Tribune. But first, the District 13 election for Sumner County Commission last month ended in a tie between Re Republican Terry Boyd and Democrat Brenda Dotson. The commission could have sent the race to a runoff, but it opted instead to appoint Terry Boyd, Boyd to the position. You know, tensions have been high ever since. WPLN reporter Blaze Ganey has been following this story, and he joins me now. Hey, Blaze, welcome back to This is Nashville. And nice to be here again. Really great to have you. So, okay, so could you sort of give us a quick summary of what's been going on here? Yeah, so Democrat Brenda Dodson versus Republican Terry Boyd came out to a tie at 398 votes. Once that happened, the commission, of course, had to look in the rule book and say, what do we do when this happens? Well, they actually have different options. Usually, you'd imagine this would go to a runoff and uh, voters would once again get out and uh, cast their vote and see if that, you know, leads to a winner. Instead, uh, they have the option in Sumner County to elect their own, uh, just choose from one of the two remaining uh, candidates. And they did that last week. So what what's the significance of Democrat Brenda Dotson's candidacy? Well, she would have been the only person of color um, on the commission. She would have, pro I believe, we don't have exact statistics, but I cannot find any Democrat that has been in the commission in Sumner County since 2000, since mm -hmm. before 2000. It, it sort of stops there. Um, and I was also that was also confirmed by one of the Democrats um, in, in the party over there um, that they hadn't, haven't had a Democrat since the 90s. So and then also uh, the area that she wants to represent, uh, she says, is poorly taken care of um, in that, you know, she wanted to bring light to that and allow somebody from that area to have a seat at the table. And so, so that's the quickest, uh, big, biggest reasons why it would matter a lot if uh, she would have been able to get that seat. All right. So let's hear what Brenda Dotson had to say about the decision. I feel the most sorry for my community because I know my community won't have that representation to make sure that they're going to get the stuff that they're allowed to. Now, Blaze, you had an update air this morning on WPLN. What, ha what else have residents been saying? Well, residents are pretty upset, and it's not just residents in District 13, actually. It's majority of the residents that spoke in the meeting were from other districts uh, within the county that were just saying, you know, we got a chance to elect who we wanted to represent us, give them a fair chance also. Um, there were some residents against that idea that said, hey, you know, this is a republic, and we, we vote for uh, our representatives, and you know, we leave the decisions in their hands. And, mm. and essentially, that is what happened. The, the decision was left in their hands, and uh, they did not allow voters uh, or listen to any of the other uh, districts of people saying, hey, let this go to a vote. They chose not to listen to them and, and elect 
the Republican um, to this 24 board commission that has all Republicans on it. Okay, so this wasn't a foregone conclusion. Sumner County Commissioner Dan Sullivan actually made a motion to send the election to a runoff. Let's hear what he said. Now, let me be clear. I want nothing more than for Terry Boyd, the Republican candidate in District 13, to be elected because I am a Republican. But I believe that this needs to be a decision that is voted on by the people of District 13. But we know that isn't what ended up happening. So what reasons did commissioners give for not letting voters decide the outcome of this election? Yeah, there were several reasons. Uh, Some was that uh, Boyd, the Republican, had more votes during the primary for her, not when she was facing Dotson, but before then, when she was facing other Republican candidates, Hmm. that her vote total was higher than Brenda Dotson's. Therefore, more people must support her. And if we had a reelection, she would likely win, was their thought. Another was that George Soros and the Clintons would be pouring money into the Democrats' campaign in order to gain a political point and say that they won a small election in Tennessee. Another was that the founding fathers had a chance to establish a democracy and chose instead a republic, giving the powers to the representatives instead. So, you know, it it was a lot of things in there. I think some of the some of them seem a little outlandish, possibly, but ultimately the decision lied in their hands. There was also some drama about a seating chart and rules. Could you explain what that's about? Yeah. So uh, before this meeting. And actually, before the previous meeting also, a seating chart was sent in uh, sort of anonymously at at the time, but we found out later it was the current chair. Um, A seating chart was sent in with Boyd's name already on it, Dotson's name, nowhere on the paper to be seen. You would imagine if you don't know who's going to be in that seat, how could you go ahead and put somebody there? Uh, That already sort of hinted at what the outcome would be. And then with the rules, uh, those also were crafted and made before the commission was sworn in. And so one of the commissioners said, well, how did this come about? If we're the new commission, how did you make a seating? How, how did you make the rules? Uh, who, who was in this meeting? Because if two or more or if yes, two or more uh, current commissioners were in that meeting, then it violates the Sunshine State laws. He actually asked, well, so can you tell us who was in that meeting? And they said, no, it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm summing it up a little briefly, but essentially they waved them off and said no. Wow. Any takeaways you have? Uh, that's not how it's supposed to work. Um, but like I said, this is a, a 24, uh, 24 Republicans all on the committee. Some seem not to necessarily like the way this is being done, but the chair, I, I've been told, has been— in that seat for a very long time. And I guess you don't want to get on his bad side or upset him. And he probably feels as if he is not only the chair, but the ruler uh, is the way he was acting. I mean, just being honest. How'd you, how'd you come across this story? Yes. So the the story actually was uh, sent in an email. Somebody said, Hey, there was a tied race. Uh, I think WPLN should take a look into it. And and that was it. That was all the tips we needed. And, And once I started looking into it, the more and more it became, uh, you know, I found out about the seating chart, um, the the rules. I mean, it, it was a lot of things that were going wrong in this story with how usually governments work. That's a lot of the work we do here at WPLN is following leads that we get from you, our listeners. And just head to WPLN, WPLN.org to let us know what you are keeping your eyes on. 
Blaze Ganey is the political reporter at WPLN. Blaze, thanks again for being with us, and thanks for your reporting. Thank you. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we will talk with Miss Rosetta Miller-Perry, who first published the Tennessee Tribune more than 30 years ago. How has the Tennessee Tribune added to your knowledge about our city? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. 31 years ago, Rosetta Miller-Perry launched the Tennessee Tribune. She wanted to see more positive stories about African-Americans in the news. Today, it stands as Nashville's longest-running African-American newspaper. It's a respected source, not only for African-Americans, but for all of Nashville. And its legacy earned her a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Newspapers Publishers Association back in 2019. It is an honor to have her here with us today. Miss Rosetta Miller-Perry, welcome to This is Nashville. Thank you. It's an honor for you to have me. It's so wonderful. Now, you know, you attended Tennessee State University to study chemistry, right? Yes. So what were your initial impressions of Nashville? Um, country. Mm-hmm. Um, not, uh, whites weren't friendly to African-Americans. It was, back then, it was two separate worlds. And our world centered around Tennessee State, Meharry Medical College, and Fish University. Mm-hmm. Now, you had come from up, up north. What, what part? Coriopolis, Pennsylvania. That's the suburbs of Pittsburgh. Okay. Now, tell me, did you know back then when you were here in Nashville for school, did you know that this would be the place where you would be spending a lot of time, particularly the majority of your adult life? Um, not really. Not in Nashville. I knew that I would be in the south because I like the way African-Americans lived in the South. Their families were totally different from our families up North. The the African-American families in the South pursued education for their children. And therefore you have a lot of educated Blacks in the South. Up North, a lot of Individuals worked in the steel mills. They made good money. They could buy big cars and so forth, you know, like in Detroit and Pittsburgh and some of those other cities. So the Northern Negroes made money, wanted money. And the Southern Negroes, because they couldn't get good jobs, they went on and got educated and, of course, benefited from it. From those differences in the community that you got to recognize and see what really stuck with you outside of that, that push for education here? Um, I saw more family related activities. I saw so much centered around the African-American churches and I just saw that African-Americans in the South were just totally different up North. Uh, They were warmer. Um, You know, 
up north once you finish high school. That's it, basically. There's not much social interaction, maybe some churches, but in the South, it's different. You finish college and people you finish college with, even if they go and live in California and come back, there's that that relationship. We, we didn't have that up north. They still don't have that up north. Would you say that that was because of the segregation that was happening at the time? Not not to say that there wasn't segregation in northern cities like Detroit, Chicago, Baltimore, New York, and Boston, but it looked a little bit different than it did here in the South. Yes, I think it was because of segregation. You know, we had to depend upon each other. And, you know, we had no jobs in the South, no decent jobs in the South. So it was a dependency upon each other and each and each other's families relating to that, any situation. It was just more family and it's still more family. Mm-hmm. So you began working at as a field representative for the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights in Memphis. There you became yeah. fully adversed, immersed in the civil rights movement. You know, take us back to that time. What was it like? Horrible. That's the time when uh, the garbage men went on strike in Memphis. And I was working at that time for, I believe, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. And I was a field investigator. And Blacks in Memphis were just treated so horribly. Even the sanitation workers, you know, um, they just treated the, the men less, like they were less than men, treated them like animals and so forth. Um, and I, I had a problem because I belonged to a national sorority. And when that situation took place, the elites and middle class and educated Black folks were not getting involved in that sanitation strike. And I know from my sorority that I got with another sorority member and raised hell to, to get them to, to march with these poor, poor people or uneducated Blacks and get involved. And we got them involved, thank goodness. And, and that movement grew from there because even though it was sad, some of those teachers lost their jobs and so forth because they had photographers taking pictures of whoever was in the marches and so forth. But, um, and other people who got into March who um, had jobs with white companies like truck drivers and so forth, they lost their jobs. You know, and I can just say this because I can never forget it. There was one particular black man. He was ready to retire, maybe had a year or something like that. And I guess somebody snapped his picture and took it to his boss. And he went on and worked. And when it was time for him to retire, they had the pictures of him in the march. And they wouldn't give him his retirement. And, Mm. you know, that has stuck with me and made me a little bitter. But that happened. That's just one incident. You know, it happened over and over. Some teacher got fired and couldn't even get a decent job after that. They had to leave Memphis. Did that shape how you went into your activism, that experience? Oh, yeah. I, I was a very bitter person. I saw an awful lot. I was very bitter. So I understand. And, I'm, I'm sorry. 
No, that's okay. You know, I understand shortly after that, you did some work for the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. What, yes. What led you there? Well, once you're a federal employee, uh, since the, they have the best benefits in the country, I decided to stay with the government. And then I wanted to deal with employment of African-Americans, you know, discrimination and employment with African-Americans, because I, there was a lot in Memphis. You know, you just couldn't even get a job as a clerk, you know. Mm. A lot of Blacks did work in the post office, which was supposed to be the cream of the crop. But after investigation, we found out postal workers hardly made any money. It was just sad for our race, period. And you actually became the first director of the Nashville field office, right? Yes. Yeah. Tell yes. me, what did you learn about our city from that vantage point? Did they have similar problems as Memphis at that time, or was it something unique and singular to Nashville? Well, I think they had similar problems, but you had more educated Blacks here. So um, they, those Blacks who were educated had good jobs and good homes and drove to find cars. Um, kind of stood back from the movement. They didn't really, really get involved like Memphis. And one reason is they don't have that many, they didn't have that many Blacks here. You know, Memphis had a lot of Blacks. They had a lot of poor people. And, and Nashville didn't have that many. They have poor people, but not like Memphis. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I just, I thought I was coming here to really get involved while working in the movement. And I came here, I remember, you know, when, even when Blacks were running for office and I was working for the late Judge Birch and I said, um, I can get a truck and get the horns and go through the neighborhoods and, you know, beef up people to come out to vote and all that. And he said, we don't do that in Nashville. All I want you to do is stand out and quietly hand out my brochure. And that was Nashville. That put me in the place because I knew I wouldn't be doing what I did in Memphis. How'd you feel about that? I was disappointed because I was younger and active and, you know, I, I always loved politics. I still do. But I wanted to be active in politics. I didn't want that silent thing that Nashville has. Explain to me that that's that silent thing that Nashville has. Well, you know, in Memphis, you could rent a truck and go through all the black neighborhoods and hold up your sign and with, have your microphone and all that. They don't do that. They didn't do that here. And I don't think they, I don't, I've never seen them do that here. It's more, it's just quiet almost intellectual and, and cities like Memphis, it's not like that. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil A. Colonna. We're talking this hour with Ms. Rosetta Miller-Perry, the founder of the Tennessee Tribune, which she first published 31 years ago. So let's jump forward to 1991, the year you founded the Tennessee Tribune. Where did that idea come from? I was looking at another black newspaper and then I decided I would try to work for them, which I did. 
And I and and in one issue, I saw this woman, this young black woman who was shot and her head was hanging out of the car. And then I saw it in the white press. And I kept saying, this is crazy. Why do we want to keep showing this picture? And you've got these young kids coming up. And of course, they would see the picture. It would be on television and everything. Why was everything negative in the white press about us and also in the black press, not just Nashville, all over this country? Those newspapers, all our newspapers are doing the robbery thing and, and the killing thing and the wife swap and all that, you know. And I just didn't want a newspaper like that. I felt that if, when I left work and I went home, I want to read some news, some good news about Black people. And I'll tell you this, when I started going to our national meetings in Washington, I raised the same situation to those board members. And after that, now if you read our papers our papers show the positive things but they didn't do that then either mm. i guess it was just a, a trend you're just showing the ugly side of us even though every other race has the ugly side of them in your mind how does constant negative news how does that really affect people when they're just subjugated to negative news about themselves or others how does it affect who the question is, how does it affect how me does, how, how, others? How does it affect others? How does that how does that affect people when they're constantly think, reading negative news? Um, for some people, and I've experienced this from telephone calls, that African Americans believe what they see in the white press. The white press is the last word. Um, and I think if, if the black press doesn't come behind and tell the real story, you know, people would have made up their minds about what has happened or what they read in the white press. They don't see the other side. And, and um, it affects the community. It affects these young people coming along. I, I remember when a situation happened and there's a young woman, well, she's probably older now, working for the city. And she called me and she said, you know, I'm agreeing with what the Tennessean had to say. You know, this should not have happened like that. And it really made me angry because she was on the wrong track. Because if the Tennessean said it, it was right. But she didn't understand the Tennessean like I did. What were those? And, and, I'm, keep going. I'm go sorry. Ahead. No, I'm sorry. Continue. And and then for the white press, if a, a house would burn, and all all the folks, you know how they used to run around and run up to the house or something. The white press, TV, etc., would take a picture of the biggest African American woman with with bed slippers on, pink and pink rollers in her hair. I mean, it was always just making us just look bad. You know, not that she looked bad, she did look bad really, but it was always like they were painting this negative thing of how we look. 
you know, or how we dress or what we really always look like, which wasn't necessary. You know, the house is burning. Take the picture of the house. Why are you taking up somebody watching it burn? I'm familiar with that trope that you often see in broadcast uh, broadcast news. Um, but I'm going to ask you something related to that, because you went from this degree in chemistry to civil rights work, to equal employment work, to publishing this paper. That's a very unique path. When this difference in journalism that you want to see, this difference in storytelling that you're aiming to do with the Tennessee Tribune, what were the hurdles that you faced in the path to publishing the Tribune? Uh, okay. Well, one, first of all, I couldn't find anyone to work for me. Um, the only individuals I could find were really working for a another company and they had to work for me like undercover. See, and a lot of my early papers, you'll see a name in there. It's a fake name. Uh, some African-Americans didn't want their name tied into a black paper because they feared for their upward mobility. And, and you know, I, I, I live with that. I, I still think about that. Um, they didn't know where I'd be today, but um, it's, we don't have enough confidence in our people or, or in those who are trying to do for the community, you know, and, and that's the tragic part. And that's what I saw a lot of. Now, it has not been easy for me. I have caught holy hell in this city from Black folks. You know, it just seems like they don't want you <laughs> to move ahead or whatever. But it's been very difficult for me. But I just stand my ground and keep moving. And then Blacks get angry. If I'm going to do a story about a white man um, getting caught gambling, then what's wrong with me doing a story about a brother doing the same thing? Well, the black community doesn't like that. So I've caught a lot of flack there. That, that seems a little odd to me. How did you feel about that? Because, you know, at one point in time, the black papers, the press is all negative. But here it is, you're presenting positive stories, but they also seem to be fair and balanced, yet the community really didn't want that. How did you, how did you respond to that? Well, let me, before I say that, let me tell you what happened to me. When the Titans first came to town, a minister and another very prominent businessman who's a good friend of mine talked to the owner of the Titans, I think he's deceased, I know he's deceased now, and told him, because they were going to advertise in the black press, told him not to advertise in my paper. Now, And that's what I've had to deal with. I just don't write about it, but I'm going to tell you about it. And these aren't white people doing that to me. These are the black brothers doing that to me. You know, that, that's been my struggle. That's been the struggle of the paper. I've had my competitors call some of my advertisers and say, we don't print as many papers 
as we say we do. And of course, you know, our advertisers love us. So, you know, they call us and laugh about it. But it's so tragic because here you, here, I'm not, I already made my living. So I don't make my living from the newspaper. I'd have that paper to help other people make a living. And then I, then you have your own people trying to destroy you. And I've been through that. I've lived through that. And it hurts. But the harder they try, it seems like the higher higher up I go. So I guess it really doesn't matter. I mean, but it's tragic how we treat each other. We keep fighting white folks. But we do so much damage to us. So much. You know, in the face of all this difficulty and pushback, you kept pushing on and persevering. In December of 2000, you moved the Tennessee Tribune office to Jefferson Street, and it was a really big day. Even former Mayor Bill Purcell was there to show his appreciation. Let's hear a little bit about what he said. I'm going to use this podium because Rosetta Miller Perry told me to. <laughs> like everyone in this room, I try to do what she asked me to do. It's a very special pleasure as mayor of Nashville to have this opportunity uh, to... Uh, bring greetings on behalf of the city on a very special day. It's hard to imagine that it was 11 years ago that Rosetta Miller-Perry and others, but really Rosetta, began the Tennessee Tribune and began to touch this community in a very broad way. Not only helping us understand things that we hadn't understood before, but helping the rest of the city understand those things in a new and, I think, unique way. It's been a part of her habit to not only uh, lift us up as individuals, but attempt to lift up the whole city. And so today, uh, at this uh, ribbon cutting, we recognize the fact that the Tennessee Tribune, its staff and investors, have lifted up a part of our community in a, in a unique and direct way. They took action. Take us back to that day in 2000. What was that like for you? Well, that was a very, very exciting day. Uh, the only thing that he said that was wrong, he said, and her investors. Now, you know, who would invest in a black newspaper? You couldn't even get blacks to invest in a black newspaper. Mm. There was only one investor and that was me. But that was an exciting, really an exciting day. It was an exciting program. And a mayor bill for sale has always been in the corner of the black press. I remember when TSU was having a homecoming game, and I don't know why the city decided to tear up Jefferson Street, you know, to work on it. It was horrible. And I called him. It, it was like a day or two before all these folks are going to come in town. And I told him what happened. He had, he had his folks out there after midnight paving that street all the way up to TSU, wherever they tore it up, up to TSU. And I will never forget that. How many mayors would do something like that for, you know, a black school? He wasn't doing it for me. He was doing it for all those folks coming in town that, that would ride down Jefferson Street. You know, tell so, me, what are, what are some of the biggest moments that the Tribune has experienced since you started? Oh, have I had any? Um, I, my biggest moment is 
I just, I, I was so sick and tired of seeing young black men and women on Jefferson Street once a year selling their products. They couldn't get into Kroger or Walmart or these different stores or anything, but once a year. And other than that, they either had to do it door to door or whenever they had something at a church or somebody had something, you know, on, on another street. And I started thinking about that. We spent all our money with white folks. And when you have these young young folks trying to be business people and they were denied. And, and what hurt me was when the Hispanics came here just, a, just off the boat not too long ago and you go in Kroger and these other stores and you see all their products. But where do you see the black products? You still don't see them. So that is one reason that I decided I wanted to have a store. I wanted a store so these products could be sold for these young vendors. And that is why I have two stores at the airport now. There are 40 African-American vendors selling their products in the stores from, from, from liquor to popcorn, to tea, to coffee. It's all African-American. I mean, the store is like all the other stores out there, but that's the only store that has a lot of, at least 40 African-American vendors. Usually in airport stores, you may see one vendor all across this country, but they're, they're and they, they are doing well, absolutely well. We're going to go to break real quick. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Miss Rosetta Miller-Perry and talk about where she thinks Nashville is at now and what the future holds. Do you have a question for Rosetta Miller-Perry? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. I've been talking this hour with Rosetta Miller-Perry, who founded the Tennessee Tribune 31 years ago. Miss Rosetta, thank you again for being here. Now, I want to ask, you've been covering stories in Nashville for more than three decades, and you've seen a lot change. In recent years, the field of journalism has kind of come under fire. What do you think about media's place in today's landscape? Oh, what do I think about it? I, it it's, it's, it's very difficult today. Um, it's difficult today for Black journalists, even when they work for white media, because there's still so much racism. Um, sometimes Black journalists are hired to work into or work for a white newspaper but they aren't given the same respect and so forth that the white reporters get 
who have less experience than these black journalists. And I don't see it in my short time here left on earth. I just don't see it changing that, that much because the country, because of Trump is so hostile and they were hostile before, but it wasn't open. It's open now. So it's, it's, it's not gonna be easy. That, and sometimes they set the bar a little different for us, you know. Now, so does this open hostility that you're talking about, I don't necessarily think that it's former President Trump who invented that hostility. He may have, as you know. said, given a, a, an open a door for people to be hostile again. Does that remind you of what was going on, particularly here in Nashville in the country, back when you first came here to this town when you were a student at TSU? Oh, yes, definitely. It, it, it was difficult and very different. Um, I, I often thought that it just reminded me of what my ancestors went through as, as slaves. It has not been good. It really hasn't been that good for us. We put up a good show. And I think our problem is, one of our problems, if you have a son and he's lucky enough to get a position, maybe for the city government, fairly decent middle management position, and they're only going to hire that one. But I always maintain if you get in, you do like the white folks do. When there's an opening, then you go out there and find your brothers and sisters to apply for that opening. But we're our worst enemies because we don't do that. We always want to be number one and only, you know, not knowing down the road you're going to get knocked off. So I, I don't lay everything on the white man. I lay a lot of it on us, you know. It's, it's like, I got mine and you got to get yours, but I'm not going to help pull you up. And I don't see a race surviving like that. You know, the one thing I have to say about the Hispanics, they support each other all the way. And we don't do that. We just got a tweet in from a listener, Alejandro Grizar. Grizar. And he asks, how did you overcome the hate from your own community? I see this a lot in the immigrant community as well. This is what they just tweeted to us. How, how do I overcome? Yeah. How do you overcome the hate or just the difficulty and, and exactly what you're saying, the lack of mm -hmm. a cohesion within the community to help each other out, a constant bickering or every person for themselves? How is that? How do how did you do, overcome that? And also give us some potential ideas for how we can fix that for the future. Well, no matter what one does to me, you know, I don't keep hate in my heart if I ever had it. I still reach out with the olive branch. And even though there are a lot of African Americans who I don't want to say they hated me. You know, sometimes people hate your success, you know, but I still reach out to them. I still help people and I will always help people. Um, if, and for an example, 
I when I started out, my my editors were white. I couldn't get I couldn't get any black folks to work for me, and then, and and that's sad. My first editors were white, you know, and um, some blacks said, well, they didn't want to work for a black newspaper because they thought it would tap them if they tried to get a job with a white newspaper. And that's sad. But th those are some of the things th that I have gone through. Do you still, do you think that that's the case now? I mean, oh, actually, let me ask you this: what What types of stories are you most focused on now in telling in the Tribune? Really, human interest and um, stories stories about welfare and how these young kids, because they're our future, how they're treated, and how these the, the welfare system treats the black community. And, and dealing with these children and taking these children and, and so forth. Um, those those are, I have more interest in that than who shot somebody. I, I don't care about that and I won't write about that. You know, let the white press do that. You know, do, but, do readers in the community and do they inform you of stories that you pursue or are they coming to you and saying, hey, Miss 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 Perry, this is what's happening to us. We'd love you for you to cover some of these stories that go into the welfare state? Yes. And people, yeah, once you see a story, then you'll get lots of inquiries and they'll say something's happening in this county. This judge is doing this to the black community, you know, as far as um, children are concerned. And that's how you get your, your leads because you wouldn't, you don't know what's happening in all these counties. You can't know. And some terrible things are happening to our people. How important are these community connections to you and the work that you do? Very important, because if you don't have the connections, we're, you won't have information for a story. You've got to have connections. You can't make the story up. It has to be factual. You know, we've got the midterm elections coming up in two months. What are you looking mm -hmm. forward to covering? Um, I'm not sure. You know, I'm I'm really not that into politics. I do some things in politics, but I try not to be that much in the politics because I don't think that's what my readers want to read about. You know, maybe something on Biden or Kamala or something, but not much in politics, except there are times when we have to take on the governor. You know, um, we try not to do too much political things because politically, politicians, politicians can, can, can damage your newspaper. They got a lot of power. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil E. Colonna. We're talking this hour with the publisher of the Tennessee Tribune, Rosetta Miller-Perry. I just want to stick with politics for a second, because next year we have mayoral elections coming up. You know, you've been in the city. Yeah. You've been working in the city for a long time. What do you think the city needs 
right now in a leader? Well, I don't have any problem with the current mayor. No matter who sits in that seat, people are going to have a problem with them. And I just don't, I have no problem with the current mayor, I'll tell you that. And I do know, in fact, I know personally that there are at least three or four black women who plan to run, you know, which I have told them, three or four black women, that divides the vote. But they all feel that they are all powerful and they can do it. So I say, so be it, but I'll stick with the current mayor. Do you think, I wonder what your thoughts are, because I've heard this debated a lot. I've only been in town for a year, but a lot of people have mentioned this, but do you think that Nashville will ever have a black mayor? No. I think at one time we came close, but I don't think we'll ever have a black mayor because the city keeps growing and growing and our, our population's being diminished. And as it grows, you know, we're, you're just not going to have, you're not going to have black folks in the city, not many. And the ones who have influence and, and money and so forth, who probably could do something, they don't want to be in the city either. So they moved to Brentwood and, you know, Williamson County. So what's left here? Just a few of us. No, this 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 city's gonna go politically pretty white in years to come. Because there's no way for an influx of blacks to come in here because they couldn't live here. Hmm. So you mean you mean as far as the voter base, the majority of the the voting populace right. will be white. Right. Now yeah. You know, it's, but you've seen this city change from a town that was segregated to becoming the it city for the entire country. You know, yeah. what do you see yeah. as being, what do you see Nashville's future holding? Well, I, I think this city will always be music city. It will always have predominantly white musicians and so forth and just a sprinkling of us um it, it it'll it's just difficult to get into that scene so i don't have high hopes for those of us who have our homes and so forth we're lucky but even as we pass on it probably won't, your house probably won't be sold to a black person because they couldn't afford it. You know, real estate has escalated. So I don't know what's going to happen to these young people who are educated and come out and maybe get a job as a teacher. But a teacher can't live in these houses that are now five, six, seven, eight, $800. Let me, let, let me ask you one final question. You know, what can be done to ensure, we have a minute, what can, we have one minute left, but what can be done to ensure that Nashville is a fruitful place for everyone who lives here? 
I think that Nashville needs to go back to the days when they had a coalition of, they, they were ministers, they don't have to be ministers, but of, of whites, Jewish, you know, they can get Hispanics, that coalition group that should sit down and talk about the future of Nashville. It can't just be a few white folks over there off of wherever white people live, or a few black folks that are handpicked by white folks. There has to be the right coalition. And I think Nashville will probably be okay, but I don't think it's going to be such a great city if you're an African-American. I really don't. I want to thank you so much for coming on to the show. I want to thank you for sharing your story and your candor. Miss Rosetta Miller-Perry, again, thank you for this conversation and thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, how will student loan forgiveness affect our region that holds over 20 colleges and universities? We'll get the scoop. This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harush and Rose Gilbert. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tutto. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Ekelona. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.